We've talked about this for a couple weeks, and we're here. Uh, we get to launch our time in Romans. Um, thankful that we're going to spend the spring looking at this book, um, looking at the truth of what God has told us in all of Scripture, because you know, one of the beauties of this is, is the summary kind of, of of the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus. And so... Paul writes this book to the Romans and encourages them in the faith. And our prayer for this series is that over the coming decade, yep, decade, because we're going to do it over springs for the next couple years, um, but over the coming decade, the Lord would build for us a foundation for our faith in the power of God for salvation. That's our hope. That we would trust and believe and know and understand and cling to the power of God for salvation, our salvation, and those of the lost, those of, uh, of our neighbors, those of our uh, co-workers, fellow students, that, that God would send us with this knowledge of his power to save, and we would be transformed. So why Romans? Well, one, like we said, it's, it's this beautiful summary of the, of the gospel, What you're going to find as we go through Romans is there's so many verses you know, like so many, that you have memorized or that you're at least familiar with, but maybe you haven't gone through the whole of Romans and seen how Paul is laying this down as a foundation and he builds upon each one all the way through the book, both speaking truth and then even towards the end, this beautiful application of that truth. What does that look like? in your life. And so, we're going to spend some time in Romans. Romans is significant for quite a few reasons. uh, It holds a special place in the Bible. It's actually the first epistle in the canon of Scripture. And so, before it, you have all of these narratives. You have all of these... um, The Old Testament has some, some books of wisdom and prophecy mixed in, but really what you have is this narrative of the people of God leading up to... The gospel accounts, which are also narratives. They're narratives about who Jesus was and what he did and how he died and how he rose again. And then you have a narrative of the book of Acts, like what did the church look like after that? And so then Romans comes in and it's the first epistle. And and so yes, it has some narrative in it, but mainly it points to the truth of like, what does all that mean? How does all that work together? And so I agree with those who say that it's the first epistle in the canon because it ties the two great narratives, the narrative of the Old Testament and the narrative of the New Testament Gospels together. It ties those things together. And what we're going to find is that God has ordained to use Paul in a particular way to be able to do that. We also are in Romans because Romans has actually had an effect on a lot of the church. Throughout church history, it's, had, um, it's, it's played a key role in a lot of lives. St. Augustine uh, was affected by the book of Romans. It actually drew him in, and his conversion took place because he had a vision of, of take and read, tole lege, take and read. And so then he went and opened his Bible, and it opened to Romans 13. And there it says, put on Christ. And he began to understand that, that this was something that had to do with the person and work of Jesus. Maybe you know, maybe you've heard of St. Augustine. He wrote quite a few books and 
gave us a lot of our understanding very early on in one of the first centuries after Christ. Then you have Martin Luther, great reformer, right, who understood the church had been, had been adding to the work of Jesus and calling people to add their own works to their salvation. And so he goes back and, and through the book of Romans, he points to the fact that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not any work of ourselves. It's the gift of God. And so he presses into this. And so much of the, the doctrine of the justification by grace through faith has come from Paul's letter to the Romans. And I'm not trying to assert myself with these men, but I'll be honest, Romans has played a key role in my life. I grew up in church. I grew up with an understanding that, that I loved God. And, and so um, it, was, it was, man, I, I pursued him. I loved him. And when I didn't, I, I repented. And so it just became this cyclical thing. But I was the center of that. And so I was on a submarine, and, and my buddy Matt Smith gave me said, man, I don't know if we agree on the same things. I think if you read the Bible with more clarity, you would begin to understand that you didn't pursue God. He pursued you. And so he gave me, he charged me to read the book of Romans. And man, those two weeks were just crazy in my life. And God did a work and an understanding of, of the, the doctrines of grace and who he is and that he has pursued me and that he sought me out. And so Romans has been... Uh, formative for me. Another reason that we're going to be in Romans is because I think it's really pertinent for the church today. You see, all around us, we see a people that are looking for salvation. Unfortunately, most of the time, they're looking into themselves for salvation. They're trying to fix themselves. And what the book of Romans gives us is is a salvation that depends not on their ability, but on God's ability. And so it's this beautiful gift that we've received that we get to give to others. Many uh, are looking for it in in religion. There are some that just are completely rejecting it, knowing that they could never save themselves, and so there is no hope for salvation. And we have this gift that we get to share the gospel with them. The message in the book of Romans is that God saves us by grace through faith in his son, Jesus. So these are the reasons that we're in Romans, and this is how we're going to approach it. We're going to do this morning where we're just kind of setting the context. We're giving who is, uh, who is Paul, who is the church in Rome, and what is the message of the gospel. Just real simple. One of the ways that you could look at that is, is the, the man, the mission, and the message. Right? So the, the man is Paul, but, but he's quick to, to take himself out of the spotlight and point to Jesus, and so we're going to see that. The mission is the church in Rome. He's writing to the church in Rome that they would be built up in their faith, that they would have a foundation to live upon. This, the power of God for salvation. And then finally, the message. What is the power of God? It's that Jesus came, that he lived perfect righteousness, obedience to the law, fulfilling the law, died in our place, rose again, defeating sin and death, He's ascended on high, and now we get to put on Christ. We get to be in Christ today because of the work of Jesus. The man, the mission, and the message. 
So we're going to introduce that today. And then the next four weeks, we're going to summarize all of Romans. So we're going to break it up into four parts and, and give you the whole story so that we can kind of see. And as we go into next year, um, in the springtime again, and we enter back into Romans, we'll have some reference points to be able to go back to and say, hey, what is the, what is the whole of Romans? Because I forgot. It's been a, been a year. And then uh, finally after that, we'll, we'll dive back in and we'll just go verse by verse. Like we, like we do, preaching the gospel, seeing the good news of Jesus in all of the passages of Romans. Um, <clears throat> to, this morning can be a little heady, right? We can, anytime we teach, we engage our minds and we engage our head. But the reality is that if we would do that, it's so that we can more fully engage our heart. Like, any teaching would be to form our worship, and, and worship is the fullness of our life. And so I pray that God would do that today, and, and I can't do that in us. I can't do, even do that for me. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that, so let's ask him to do that this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you've preserved your word. We thank you that in your word there's authority. Authority and truth. So this morning we stand firm on that. We rest in that. That is our foundation, the truth of God's word to us. And so Lord, we pray for our time in Romans. God, we pray that it would lay a foundation for our lives, that that we would worship rightly. God, I pray for all those that are preaching this same gospel, whether it's out of the book of Genesis downstairs or whether it's um, any other passage of Scripture, Lord, throughout the world, that, that as your gospel is proclaimed, that you would draw men and women to yourself for your glory. God, that you would be glorified, that you would be worshipped, that you would be made much of, that we would behold our God God, I thank you for the truth of your word this morning. Spirit, work in our hearts, both as the, the people of God collected in this room and as individuals, Lord, that we would hear your word and that we would be changed, that we would be transformed, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. God, we ask for this in your name. Amen. Well, really, uh, Randy read verses 1 through 7, but we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning and then jump to verse 7. Um, so, so look at verse 1 with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So this morning, uh, we begin with the man. Who was Paul? In verse 1. And probably many of us are familiar with Paul. Um, Maybe we've, we remember his conversion story. Maybe we remember that he was actually a persecutor of the Christians before God did this work. And if, you, if you're not familiar with that, I would encourage you this week to go back to Acts chapter 9 and read uh, Paul's conversion, the, the miracle of it, how he saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on the road to Damascus, and how he was forever changed by it. But three things about about Saul of Tarsus, right, which is what he was called before he met God, 
on the road before he met Jesus. Um, three things about Saul of Tarsus that are, that are really pertinent to our time together. The first one is this. Saul of Tarsus was a Roman by birth. He's Roman by birth. Not everyone that's in the, in the known world at that time was Roman. Like Most of them lived under Roman rule, but they did not have the title of being a Roman citizen. Many of them were conquered, and many of them uh, were, were slaves under the Roman Empire. But some of them were actual Roman citizens. And with that citizenship came this privilege and this ability to travel to go different places, to have different jobs that other Roman citizens, that people who were not Roman citizens couldn't have. And so this Paul or Saul being born Roman by birth is huge. And, and it has significance for all of his life. There's a couple times where he's writing where he asserts that Roman citizenship and uses that so that he can go to different places and tell different people about the truth of who God is. So Saul was Roman. Saul was also Jewish by descent. He was born a Jew. And, and not just born a Jew, he, he, was in, uh, he was taught and schooled as a Jew. He was taught to, in, a, in a particular sect of the Jewish culture, which was uh, the Pharisees. And if you remember, he actually says that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Philippians 3, 3 through 11 really is where Paul defines like all of the things, all of the, the, the things that God has done and ordained in him, setting him apart. When we read that in Romans 1, called to be an apostle and set apart. This piece of being set apart. God orchestrated that, that Saul would be born a Roman citizen. That Saul would be born a Jew. But, and then finally that Saul would be born in Tarsus, which is the, one of the central hubs of the Greek culture. Like, God is working all of those things. It didn't happen by accident. God has a plan, and he's forming, even before Saul had seen Jesus on the road and become Paul, God was working in his life. God was setting him apart for this particular reason. But Philippians 3, I'm going to read 3 through 6 right now, just talking about uh, Paul is writing to the Philippians and he's telling them about himself. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's asserting the fact that if, if, if a righteousness could be put in your actions, he would be one of the few, maybe one of the leaders of that. But he's putting all that aside, and we're going to see later in, in Philippians where he ends with that. But, but this is a reality. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. He's zealous for, for God and, and, and for even to the point of persecuting the church. But God is using all of this, all of this, so that Paul is going to become the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who would take the good news of God 
to the world that needs to hear it. So this is the man, Paul. Finally, we, I mentioned it, but just the idea that he was Greek by geography and culture growing up in Tarsus. The Greeks were the great thinkers of that age. They, they created all the philosophy. When you think of, of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, they were all Greek thinkers. And they put all of this logic in play and taught people how to argue and to how to have firm foundations to build upon. And then you, you see what Paul writes throughout his epistles, and you're like, man, that dude was learning from them. He was taking that Greek culture, and he uses it for God's glory, and it's beautiful. He also celebrates like the arts and poets and different ways, different thinkers. And so Paul is set apart by God, and the plan of God... For, the whole, for his whole life is so that he can go and be on mission for God to the Gentiles. Here's what verse 1 tells us working backwards. He's set apart. You can find how God set apart Paul in uh, Acts 9 like we talked about. But in Galatians 1, 15 and 16 he says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. That's powerful. Paul's saying like all of the things that that have happened in my life have been orchestrated by God before I was even born so that I would meet Jesus, I would see Jesus, and then I would declare Jesus to the world. Paul set apart. Secondly, working back in verse 1, he's called to be an apostle. What is an apostle? Is it a disciple? Well, yes, an apostle is a disciple. Um, But it's a a group within disciples. You see, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. So as we think about those who were called by Jesus to, to be disciples, those who followed after him, there was more than just the 12. Some, some counts are 70, some counts are 700, but there's always a crowd that would follow Jesus. But not all of them were called to be apostles. An apostle was a particular designation. If you look at Luke six twelve through 13, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray to God. That's Jesus. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then you have the twelve apostles called by God. So you have these disciples who are there, and out of those disciples, apostles are called. Martin Lloyd-Jones is helpful in his definition of what an apostle is. He says this, An apostle is one chosen and sent with a special mission as the fully authorized representative of the sender. I'll say it again. An apostle is one chosen and sent with a special mission as the fully authorized representative of the sender. So this apostle, as as the apostle is declaring truth, he's, he's declaring truth in the name of God. Now, as disciples, we all stand and we proclaim that same truth. But we're given this authority as long as we're under the word of God. But when the apostles would speak, they were speaking 
the truth of God, but it hadn't been written down yet. It's being written down as they're saying it. So these apostles have authority. They are sent, with, sent by God with a special mission with his authority and representative of God himself. So there are three requirements to be an apostle. Um, and, and the church from a very early on has, has agreed with these three requirements to be an apostle. They must have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. They must be called and they're given authority and a commission to do certain things. We're going to get into this more as we, as we move through Romans about this authority that's given to be an apostle, the commission to do certain things. But Paul stands firm on this and, and argues his apostleship. Having seen the risen Savior on the road to Damascus, having been called and set apart by him, and then having power and authority to do the works of an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's reminding them. He says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For was I not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The apostles performed the signs and wonders and mighty works of God. What's so great about the idea that Paul is an apostle of God is this. Paul persecuted the church. Like he's as far away from God as you can get. He wasn't just neutral. He wasn't just misguided. He was zealous and persecuted the church. He was there when Stephen is stoned in Acts. Listen, if, if anybody is too far from the, the saving power and the rescuing power of God, it's, the, it's Paul, it's Saul. And yet, God has done this thing where he goes and he gets the worst. He grabs the one who's persecuting him. And he does a work on the Damascus Road and he changes his heart. And he draws him to himself. And he sets that zeal for his glory. And we see it. Paul knows this. He understands that, listen, I persecuted the church. I had no grounds for the grace of God. And yet he has loved me and called me according to his purposes. What a gift of God to call Saul to be the Apostle Paul. First Timothy 1, 15 and 16 say this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full, full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul understands. His life could be riddled by shame over his persecution of the church. He could have just uh, been overwhelmed by that, and yet he's seen how God has used even his sin even his brokenness, even in his persecution of the church to show his saving power. The power of God unto salvation is displayed in Paul's life. And so everywhere he goes, he goes knowing that, hey, if people would see anything good in me, it's Jesus. Because if they see Saul, 
Right? He knows the depth of his sin. But if people would see anything good in him, they know that it's Jesus. He knows that it's Jesus. So, Paul is called to be an apostle. And I've, I've worked backwards in this. Set apart, called to be an apostle, because I think that the very first definition he gives is the, is the greatest identity piece for him. I want you to see that. I want you to build to that. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We translate that as servant, but the, the Greek word doulos is uh, often translated as slave. It's a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose are determined by their master. It's translated a couple different ways throughout the Bible. It's translated as slavery, slave, bondman, servant. But what what Paul is saying at the very get-go to the church in Rome, right? the the church that he's trying to convince, that he's trying to, to, to pastor to lay a foundation for, he, he begins with this introduction, Paul, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians seven twenty two and 23 say this, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Why would Paul introduce himself as a slave to Christ? Like, why is that the first thing that he says? Well, the the key is that any identification that he would have is in relation to his Lord. He doesn't come and and present all of his uh, accolades first that we read about in Philippians, and, and he never really presents those. He's only using those to show how great a debtor he is to Christ. But he comes and he says, listen, I'm Paul, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. The, he finishes Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being a Pharisee, being zealous, all of those things are rubbish. They're, they're trash, they're nothing compared to Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's why he begins with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He has an understanding of lordship that I think we really struggle with. I know I really struggle with it. Do I live my life in a way that would say, I am a slave to Christ? I do whatever he says. I go wherever he goes. And I think that's part of our American spirit, right? Don't tread on me. 
I'm, no one conquers me. We've never been defeated, right? So we have all this, all of this American pride, and and not all of it's bad, but but then we have a hard time reconciling that pride with a humility that says, "I am a slave to Christ." A humility that would say, "God, whatever you would have for me, I see it as good, and I'm thankful." And so I don't introduce myself as Joel, a servant of Christ. I usually introduce myself in some of my other identities. But, but I pray that God would do that in us. That we would be so compelled by the person and work of Jesus that he would be the first thing on our lips. That, that we would love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and we would identify with him in the different areas where we identify, that we would say, I'm a servant of Jesus, the Son of God, the beautiful one, the holy one, the perfect one. I've met him. I've spent time with him. I know him. And he's called me his, and I've called him mine. You see, it's not just a a lordship, but it's a love that, that Paul has for Jesus. It's a passion that he has for Jesus. Verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that, that, from God that depends on faith. Sorry, the end of verse 8. For, this, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The idea, what are we searching for? What are we trying to gain? Are we gaining status in our job? Are we gaining reputation as a, as a student or a friend? Are we looking for the affection of, of men? Or do we stand and do we count all of those things as rubbish, as, as trash, compared to the knowing Christ? Because that's what Paul's saying. That's what he's coming with in verse 1, and we could easily just say, oh, that's just an introduction, that's just like, just words that he says to, to introduce himself. But I think what you'll find is as, as you read Paul, that, that is a consistent theme of identification for him. And is it a consistent theme of identification for us? And don't, don't let that be condemning, okay? Because we can quickly say, oh yeah, I just need to fix that. No. Like what we need is a is a Stronger affection and better affection for Jesus. We need to know Him so that it would be the first thing off of our lips because of our love for Him, not because that's what we're supposed to do. So I pray that God would do that in us. That we, like Paul, would would say, I counted all all these other things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is the most significant identification Paul gives us and it's his relationship to Jesus. Paul doesn't want to, the reader to know himself, but instead is giving the church in Rome Christ. He's, he's presenting Christ to them. He's got to be nice, he's got to be cordial, and he gives them his name, but then it immediately, four or five words later, points them to Jesus. Christ is supreme in Paul's life, and so Jesus is supreme in his message. We're going to see that. So this is a man, Paul. We want to look at the mission. What is the mission? And, and jump down to verse 7. 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is a mission, the church in Rome. That's why he's writing this letter, so that the people, the individuals, those who have been called by God out of the culture, out of, out of their sin, would have a firm foundation of the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is the church not just in Rome. So, when, so this definition that he's using is, is not just in Rome, but it's actually 2,000 years later here in Cape Canaveral. We are that same people. It's not a simple salutation, but it's a weighty, significant identity. We talked about how we don't see ourselves as slaves to Christ. I think another thing that we don't see ourselves as is loved by God. Like if we saw ourselves as loved by God, we would say, yes, I am a slave to Christ. Like those two things go hand in hand. And Paul writes, and his identity that he puts on the people, the church in Rome, is that they are loved by God. That's true. Secondly, they're called to be saints. It's not your doing that makes you a saint. God calls saints. He calls us from dead sinner to living saint. He calls us out of death and into life. We, we read it in our prayer of confession, right? Being clothed in His righteousness is what makes us a saint. And so today, if you're in Christ, you are a, a holy saint, a holy priesthood. But we don't, we don't necessarily run to that identity either. Like, is that the first thing in our hearts and in our minds in the morning? Like, man, I'm a saint. I'm loved by God. And I'm praying that God would do those things in us. And then that we would speak that to each other. No, don't forget. You don't, have to, you don't have to wallow in that sin anymore because you are a saint. You have been bought with a precious price. And this is who, God, who, who Paul is calling the church in Rome to be. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church here um, was not planted by Paul. Paul hasn't actually been to Rome. He's longing to go to Rome, and, and he says that in the letter. He longs to be there. Um, we're really not sure who, who established this church, but it looks like there are, are roots of it, even in Pentecost, um, where they were all, all gathered waiting for the Holy Spirit. And if you look at Acts 2.10, it says, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. And so the thought is that, that these visitors from Rome are there when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church catches fire. And they go back and then they would go back and they would go to their homes and they would worship in their homes the God that they had met and seen. And so they go and they're in Rome, and this church is established there. One of the interesting things about this church is uh, the church in, in Rome is full of both Gentile Christians, people who, who are not Jews but have heard the good news of Jesus and have chosen to follow him, but there's also uh, the, the Jewish church there. And if you remember when we were doing our, uh, spending our time in Mark, 
we're, we believe that the, the gospel of Mark was actually written to the church in Rome to remind them of who Jesus is, to tell them who Jesus was. And so this church is, has both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Um, Ambrosiaster, who is a 4th century commentator, uh, said that the Roman church uh, was not established by an apostle, but by unnamed Hebrew Christians. He says this, The Romans had embraced the faith of Christ, albeit according to the Jewish rites, although they saw no sign of mighty works nor any of the apostles. So somewhere along the line, this group that was visiting from Rome goes back and, and plants this church and tells the people about who Christ is and what he's done. And then the, the interesting thing that happens in the Church of Rome is that um, r- close to when we think that Romans was written, which would be 54, 55, 56, some people put it as late as 57 AD, but before that, Caligula, or, or sorry, Claudius was the emperor of Rome, and he actually expelled the Jews out of Rome. So if you were Jewish by descent and heritage, you were expelled from Rome. So now you've got this church that, that was... Jews and Gentiles is now only Gentiles because they can stay, but the Jews are expelled out of Rome for five years. And then after Claudius' death, they come back. And so what you'll see as Paul is writing this letter to the Romans is that he talks about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles a lot. And, And so knowing a little bit of that history, you could understand where this reconciliation needs to happen and, and where people need to learn to live together under the law of God in light of who Christ is and what he's done. And so much of what Paul writes is to that effect. During the years that the Jews were under the ban from Rome, the remaining church would have been exclusively Gentile in composition. The return of the Jews and the Jewish Christians after Claudius' death in AD 54 and the reintegration of the latter into the Christian community constituted the apparent cause of tension between Gentiles and Jews, see Romans 11 and 14, in the Roman house churches, there's at least five such groups may be reflected in chapter 16. That's from Romans, the Expositor's Bible Commentary. So we have this history of, of what's going on in this church. And this is the mission that Paul has set out. He's, he's set out to establish this church, these churches that are gathered in the homes, and he's Um, exhorting them to live in a way that would honor and glorify God, even in the midst of tension, even in the midst of some turmoil. What we'll see in our time in Romans is Paul exhorting the church that both Jew and Gentile are saved in the same way. They're saved in the same way. Through faith in Jesus. That's the common ground that they have, no matter where they're from, no matter what their heritage, no matter what their descent. They are saved the same way through faith in Jesus. That's beautiful, and that's good for us today, too. We are saved that same way, through faith in Jesus. And anyone that you would know, anyone that you would share the gospel with, they're saved in that same way, through faith in Jesus. And so what we want to do is introduce them to Jesus. And so finally, that's the message. The man, the mission, the message. The message is the gospel of God in verse 2 which he promised beforehand, or at the end of verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. This is the promise of God. 
the gospel work of his son. And God is faithful to his promise, and he fulfills this promise in Jesus. It's been pointed to in Scripture. Uh, Paul actually took some time after his conversion and goes to Arabia. And, and some, of, some of the thoughts are that in Arabia, he's working out like how to, how to reconcile this this confrontation, right? Because it was a confrontation with Jesus that he has on the road to Damascus that's now flipped his whole world upside down. How do I reconcile with the truth of this, this law, this Torah that I've believed for so long? Does it, do you just throw it out? And, and Paul even is going to use some of that language in Romans. He's going to say, no. No, the beauty of it is that all of it works together. All of it is beautiful. All of it points to our need for a Savior. And then we have Jesus. Galatians 1, 14 through 17 say this, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Again, it's Paul writing. But when he, had set me up, when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Again, he goes away to wrestle with, to reconcile these truths that he knows. How, are, how do they all work together? And then he comes back. And that's what he's delivering to the church in Rome. And that's what he's delivering to the church in Galatia. And that's what he's delivering to the church in Ephesus. Is, is the, tr- the fullness of the gospel of God. The promise that he has given us in his scriptures. And through the prophets. It's all relevant. And it all points to the truth of who Jesus is. That's why we can't just be a New Testament church. We have to read all of scripture. Because all of it points to the reality of who God is what he's done, how he is saved and rescued. Paul says he went to Arabia, and it was there that he spent time working out how all of the scriptures pointed to Jesus as the Christ. See, he did that. Jesus did the same thing. Think about it on the road to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he's walking with some of the disciples in Luke 24, verses 26 and 27. It says, was it not ne- this is Jesus speaking, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of it. All of the wisdom. All of the prophecy. All of the narrative of a people of God being saved and rescued. The Exodus story. All of it points to the truth and the fulfillment and the fullness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the message that God has given to us. And this is the message that God has given to Paul. And this is the message that he preaches to the church in Rome. It's the good news of the Son of God. That Greek word, euangelion, is translated as gospel, but it's also translated as good news or good tidings. And any time there was something that that took place in in the, the Roman world, it would be declared as good news. It would be declared euangelion. So if 
the Caesar conquered another people, it would come and it would be declared as gospel. It was good news. But Paul's saying, I have a better good news than any you've ever heard. It's the good news, the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the work of Jesus. You and I, we don't do the gospel. We don't even live out the gospel. We, we have implications of the gospel that apply to our lives. But the gospel is confined to the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. This is the central theme of Romans. That we as humanity were dead in our sins and pursuing our own passions. And what we're going to see is Paul's explicit about our evil pursuits, our evil passions, our deadness. We could not save ourselves, so God gave his son to save us. The gift of his son is the grace of God. This is the good news of God, that God, knowing we could not save ourselves, gave of himself, gave his son to come and to live, be born of a virgin Mary, to enter into our world, to humble himself, to walk perfect righteousness, fulfilling the law, the law that we broke through Adam. God sends Jesus to be the better Adam, And Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life and he dies a death that you and I deserve. See, this is the power of God for salvation in the person of Jesus. God sacrificed his son and he raised him from the dead. It's powerful. We're going to spend the rest of our lives unpacking that. We're going to spend all of eternity rejoicing in that. The truth of who God is and what he's done. And we take hold of this salvation today the same way that the, the church in Rome would take hold of that salvation. We take hold of it through faith. By believing that Jesus is the Son of God. As we looked at in John's letter, the reality that Jesus is the Son of God is central to the gospel message. We have to believe that. And so we take hold of that by faith. It's the good news of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one is here. He has done everything needed to reconcile us to himself. It's not news. It's not new news, but it is good news, right? This story has been told from the very creation when God promises to Eve that he would send someone to to save. This is the good news of Jesus. Galatians 1, 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached to me not, is not man's gospel, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.1, set apart for the gospel of God. This is the message that Paul brings. And it's good news for you and me today. This gospel of God is the promise of God from the beginning of creation. It's the power of God for salvation, taking sinners and turning them into saints. And it's the purpose of God to redeem a people for himself, for his glory. Praise be to God for his son and the good news of Jesus. Amen? God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are doing a work in us. That your spirit is moving in our hearts to 
give us a, a new identity. An identity that we currently have, but, but is that we lose sight of so often. And your, your spirit is working it so that it's on the forefront of our minds, that we would live out of it. That we would live and move and have our being in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to be slaves to Christ. And even as slaves to Christ, to be loved by God. To be saints of God. Lord, help us to to more fully understand with our heads and our intellect and our wisdom this identity so that we can more fully worship you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you turn us into that people? I thank you that you are. I thank you that you are, are doing that in us, Lord, and I pray that it would it would, it would be not just for us, but for our neighbors, for our friends, for our co-workers, Lord, that we would share the gospel, that we would, because of our identity in Christ as slaves of Christ, that we would tell others about you. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. We thank you for the work of your Son. We rejoice in it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.